right. Question for you. Do we have any fans of Holiday Inn or White Christmas, Bing Crosby movies, Holiday Inn 1942, White Christmas 1954? Dave's a fan. One fan. Yeah. It's one of those perennial classics that shows up every year. Only one. Has anybody seen them? Um, both films prominently feature the song White Christmas, which is the biggest selling single of all time. No, no song has sold more than White Christmas ever. Yeah, in the world. Um, it sold over 100 million copies of that one song, which is insane. Um, of all times, it's hugely popular. We can all probably sing the opening lines. I'm dreaming of it. Thank you. Thank you. Here. Yeah, okay. Your applause warms my heart. Thank you. Uh, that song and those movies actually have t- historic significance. Before that song was released, people thought there's no way you could write a popular secular Christmas song. They thought it had to be religious in tones or the public would never accept it. That was the first big secular Christmas song. And from there, we have the Frosty the Snowmans and the We Wish You a Merry Christmas. Of course, yes. Yeah, of course. Um, but White Christmas sort of started that. And the movies and the songs are universally beloved. You can catch them every year on TV, like Dave said. <clears throat> I've never seen them, but I'm familiar with the song, obviously. It just took off. But this morning, we're not talking about White Christmas because I've never seen it. Never, Despite as hugely popular as it is, I've never, I'm totally unaware of what the movie's about. I have no real intention or desire to watch it or learn what it's about. It's just one of those, one of those classics that I never got into. I think we own White Christmas even. Ugh, okay. But I've never seen it, so I don't know anything about it. There's others too. I've, I've seen a Muppet Christmas Carol and, um, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. I've seen them once each. I like them, but I never, they're not in my rotation, my annual rotation. Uh, Love Actually, Polar Express, they're more modern Christmas classics. Never seen them. Can't see them all, I guess. And you know what? Those aren't the most egregious omissions from my checklist of Christmas movies. The granddaddy of all, the the, the Christmas movie more beloved than any other Christmas movie, the, the, my biggest omission is It's a Wonderful Life. I've never seen It's a Wonderful Life. Never seen it. I know, save your booze and your rotten tomatoes. <laughs> I've never seen it. I, I know all about it. I know the whole plot. I know all the famous lines. I know the, and when you ring a bell, an angel gets its wings. It's bad theology. It's not true. It's not how that happens. Um, I know the climax. I'm familiar with it, but I've never seen it, which means I never need to see it. I, I basically have seen it. Everybody talks about it all the time. And so we're not, we're not in this series. We're not talking about It's a Wonderful Life. We're not talking about White Christmas or National Lampoon or Polar Express. They're all classics. But I said we were talking about Christmas movies that I love, and I can't love a movie that I've never seen. So no, no, it's a wonderful life. Instead, we're going to talk about Miracle on 34th Street, even though I've never seen it. <laughs> I've never seen it. I know it's hypocritical to base an entire sermon mini-series on beloved classics that I've seen and I love and then include a movie I've never seen. But hey, I write the sermons, so I decide the rules. And I decided we're going to talk about this movie, even though I've never seen it. Okay? Sorry. That was antagonizing of me on a Sunday when we're talking about peacefulness. 
Um, here I go attacking, accusing you of my apologies. But here's a little secret. That theme of peace in the midst of turmoil and conflict will reappear and has reappeared numerous times already in this service. In, in the scripture reading, in the songs we sang, peace in the midst of turmoil and contentiousness is going to come up again. So with all that cleared up and my temper tantrum over, does anyone want to explain the plot of Miracle on 34th Street? Because clearly I'm not qualified at all to discuss such things. Does anybody want to come up and share what the movie's about? Yeah, you're thinking it's a wonderful life. I don't know. I've never seen it. So I don't know. Um, I, I read the plot of Miracle on 34th Street on Wikipedia. So I'm moderately qualified. But the central theme of this movie, Miracle on 34th Street, hinges on the question of whether someone can really be the incredible person they claim to be. And if so... What would the repercussions be if they are that person? So this is Chris Kringle, the man with the beard on the right. Uh, and he sees this, this drunken Santa, department store Santa, and he, he can't believe it. And so he says, I can do a better job. And he does a phenomenal job. And like little miraculous things happen. Like he can speak Dutch to this Dutch girl and stuff like that. And so the miracle on 34th Street is if Chris Kringle really is Santa, then that's a pretty miraculous truth to uncover. Here's Santa walking around in plain clothes. I'm not entirely sure that we don't have Santa right here, actually. Looking over here, white beard. Yeah. <laughs> the miracle on Clyde Street. Um, but the film explores tumultuous relationship after tumultuous relationship. You are right, there is a firing in the movie, and there's relationships that are, are tense and whatever. There's pain and hardship throughout, even by the supposed Santa himself. But 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 in the end, there is peace. Yes, there is a court battle, and we'll get there. In all of this, in all this, I see... A, no, it's okay. I see a direct connection to one of the most crucial turning points in the book of Acts. A story that consumed about two months of our uh, sermon time through the spring and summer. In this ad, Advent miniseries, we've reviewed two other major turning points. The arrival of the Holy Spirit, that's Acts 2... And uh, we tied that to hope. And the transformative joy experienced by the early church, how they gave joyfully and they rejoiced um, in this new life that they have in Jesus. And we, so we attached that to joy, obviously. That was Acts 4. And today we move into Acts 6 and 7, and that's the trial and martyrdom of Stephen. I see a lot of similarities between that enormously significant story in, in, in church history and the miracle on 34th Street. As I mentioned before, Stephen aims to prove through Scripture that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And Chris Kringle is aiming to prove he is who he claims to be. But before I go much further, let's watch a little two-minute clip to get the ball rolling. I understand the post office receives thousands of these letters every year. I have further exhibits, Your Honor, but I hesitate to produce them. Oh, I'm sure we'll be very happy to see them. Yes, uh, yes, yes. Uh, produce them, Mr. Gailey. Uh, put them here on my desk. But, Your Honor, Put them here on the desk. Put them. Yes, Your Honor. So they're bringing in bag after bag after bag of mail letters for Santa. Every one of these letters is addressed to Santa Claus. The post office has delivered them. 
Therefore, the post office department, a branch of the federal government, recognizes this man, Chris Kringle, to be the one and only Santa Claus. Uh, since the United States government declares this man to be Santa Claus, this court will not dispute it. Case dismissed. I've got to get that football helmet. Thank you so much, Your Honor, and a very Merry Christmas to you. Thank you, Mr. Kringle, and the same to you. Thank you. All right. As part of that, I don't know what's going on. I don't know why the guy needs a football helmet. I don't know what that's about. I don't know what that look between the judge and the cigar-smoking guy was all about. I don't... That escapes me. I have no idea what that's about. But um, there is a ridiculously obvious connection between that scene from that movie and Stephen. And that would be what? Give you a hint. The setting. Yeah, I mentioned that. Trying to prove the unprovable is another thing, though. Where does it take place? In a courtroom. They're both courtroom dramas, essentially. So all of Chapter 7 is Stephen defending himself in the court of the Sanhedrin. and. This is one of the major scenes of Miracle on 34th Street. Happens in a courtroom. Santa tries to prove himself as Santa. Okay. Sure. I believe you. But that was like the prosecuting attorney. And so he's come all the way over now. Even though he was wrong, now he believes in Santa too. That's nice. That's a nice touch. Um, but the first thing that connected this scene to, to Axe was, was the courtroom. Of it. In fact, I asked myself what Christmas. I wanted to talk about Stephen, so I asked what what Christmas movie takes place in a courtroom, and I didn't know. So I googled Christmas courtroom scene, and this was the first one that came up. So that's the obvious connection. But the 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 ties between the trial of Stephen and the trial of Chris Kringle actually run a lot deeper and really speak to the intentions of Luke when he authored Act Seven. In the movie, attorney Fred Gailey is tasked with defending Chris Kringle as Santa Claus. The prosecuting attorney gets Chris to admit that he's Santa, and then he's, I rest my case. He says he's Santa, that's insane. Santa's not real, it could never possibly be real, so he rests his case. And so, therefore, the man must be insane. And I think in the movie, he even ends up in an insane asylum, or something. I don't know, I've never seen it. But to prove that Chris Kringle isn't insane, attorney Fred must therefore prove that he actually is Santa, the one and only Santa, alive and in the f- flesh, hanging out with these regular non-magical dudes down on what I assume is 34th Street. The line of defense used by Fred is this. The mail is sent to Santa from all over the place, and the federal government recognizes and ships that mail, intending to deliver it as they would deliver mail to anyone, and they deliver it to this Chris Kringle guy. So if, therefore, the highest existing authority of the United States recognizes the personage of Santa Claus, perhaps it's not insane to believe that this is really him. Perhaps he is telling the truth about his true identity, and the haters are just unwilling to believe it. Although that football helmet thing means, oh, even some of the haters come over to their side. And here is where the deep connection to Stephen can be found. When Stephen is hauled before the Sanhedrin, it's on the grounds of speaking blasphemy against Moses and the temple and even God himself. Those are the most serious charges that a Jewish man could face, much more severe than our old friend Chris Kringle uh, faced in the movie. In fact, if found guilty... Stephen would face public execution. But Stephen doesn't seem very concerned by all this, does he? We read it for two months, so we're pretty familiar with the story. Stephen never seems overly concerned with the impending threat of death. In fact, quite the opposite. His face lights up radiantly like an angel, so much so that the people in the courtroom have to look away. They can't even look at him. 
He's so filled with the Holy Spirit that his physical countenance changes. And he then unleashes this powerful theological argument in his own defense. And of course, because Stephen is a martyr, that word means witness. We have There's connotations of death with that. He is witnessing not for himself. He is witnessing for Jesus. So everything he says isn't to get himself off the hook. Everything he says is to prove Jesus. He's not worried about himself getting off the hook at all. That's not what he's worried about. He's not defending himself. He's defending his Lord. And this argument that he makes serves the purpose of highlighting how God isn't to be worshipped only by one people group in one certain location, i.e. the temple, in one certain place and time in history. God is not tethered to borders or boundaries. He is active far outside the farms and streets and synagogues of Judea and Galilee, which he proved as far back as Abraham, Moses, and the tabernacle itself. He is, in other words, not bound to their narrow little perceptions of how God works or who he works with. And he outlines this masterfully and beautifully with this walk through scripture. The Sanhedrin is resistant to those changes. The Sanhedrin, that's the Jewish high council, um, the temple council. And they were resistant to these changes that Stephen is saying are true, meaning they are resistant to God himself. So much so that they even murdered his righteous son because his son strove to confront them with a new life open to the lost and broken and sinful people of Israel and the world. And so like Fred the attorney in Miracle on 34th Street, Stephen is appealing to a much higher authority. That to me is the most significant connection between that scene and Stephen. Not just that it happens in the courtroom, but the defense in that courtroom, how it happens. Fred appealed to the recognizance of the federal government. If the federal government recognizes him as Santa, then this court will as well. But Stephen appeals to nothing less than the history of the people that his enemies claim to serve, the Jewish people, as revealed in the scriptures these enemies claim to value and study, even though they miss the point of it, as orchestrated by the God that these enemies claim to worship. That's the authority that Stephen appeals to. History, scripture, and God himself. Stephen is supported by the highest authority of all, not some federal judge, but the king of kings and the author and perfecter of faith. That's who Stephen makes his appeal to. God, as revealed in scripture, which he carefully and methodically walks them through. Everything that happened through Jesus of Nazareth and all the transformative change that he instituted to those who choose to believe in him and follow him were directed by God himself under divine authority of the author and creator of life. Stephen outlines this powerfully because he has experienced the peace that comes with that truth. He knows all about it. He knows that transformative change. When we first meet Stephen, it's as a leader doing what? Serving people who need service to, widows specifically. That's how we meet Stephen, as a leader serving people who are in, in real need. And that's, so he knows that transformation. He knows that power. He knows that, that, that peace and that hope and the joy that comes with this life in Jesus. If human, if, if human history is in God's hands, which we believe it is, and if Jesus is the one who reveals the fullness of God, which we believe he does, then following Jesus means being on the right side of history. If he is the God of history and he is God's son, And following him means you're on the right side of history. And you never really want to be on the wrong side of history. The victorious side of history is what Stephen is claiming to to be on. 
If Jesus is who he said he was, then following him, Jesus leads to peace. And here's where I need to clearly define my understanding of peace. Because here's the main difference between Stephen in Acts 7 and Chris Kringle in the movie clip we just watched. Here's the main difference. Chris Kringle wasn't tossed off a cliff and then pelted with stones until he bled to death. That happened to Stephen. Nothing about that is very peaceful sounding, is it? A martyr's death at the hands of your people who hate you. That, that does, that's not what we think of when we think of peace. So if that isn't very peaceful and I'm saying that Stephen knew peace, then how can I say that the story of Stephen demonstrates that following Jesus leads to peace? What is peace anyways if it leads us to being brutally dehumanized by those who disagree with us? If peace led Stephen to be murdered, then how can I say following Jesus leads to peace? Seems oxymoronic. Well, to answer that question, we're going to look at the Christmas story for for a couple minutes. Peace isn't mentioned much in the birth narrative of Jesus, but it's unmistakably present nonetheless. We sang Silent Night, Holy Night, and I, I wrestle with that song. That song's a struggle for me because not much about that night sounded very peaceful. We're singing Silent Night, Holy Night, and it's very lovely and very sweet and very quiet and still. But I'm not sure if that's really what it was like. But the reason I don't have a huge problem, the reason I allow us to sing it at Advent time, is because there is, you read, you read the Christmas story, and despite all the brokenness and the messiness and the chaos, when you read it, you really do get a sense of peace, right? You, you can't read the story of Jesus coming to the world and not feel peaceful about it even though there's all this messiness. Peace is unmistakably present, even though the word peace doesn't show up very much. But there is a couple times. Here's one. After encountering the infant Christ in Luke 2, Simeon declares that God can now dismiss his servant in peace. Having held and seen the baby Messiah, Simeon says, now I can die in peace. He's literally saying that. Now he can die happy and fulfilled and at peace because he held a baby one time. On the outside, if you didn't know anything about Jesus, if it's just some stranger coming up to some impoverished strangers and saying, can I hold your baby? Because now I can die in peace. It's a really strange scene. It's it's kind of weird. The other time that peace is mentioned is the shepherds experience this similar sort of peace after beholding the baby Jesus as well. Just like Simeon, they, they are called to the manger and when they see the baby, they're at peace. But before they see the baby and before they're at peace, they it's not a very peaceful scene. When the angels pronounce, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those, I always get this, I should have it memorized, but I always get it mixed up. On earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. It's kind of a cumbersome sentence. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. But the thing is, the angels are proclaiming this, peace on earth, to a bunch of terrified, lowly shepherds shivering in the night. Like when the angels show up, They are not at peace. In fact, scripture says they were terrified, very fearful. These guys see the vast hosts of heaven's army blaring trumpets and shouting praise. And the result is they need to change their tunics. They are afraid. Scares them. These men are not at peace when the angels arrive. There's nothing peaceful about this terrifying divine creature suddenly appearing, materializing out of nowhere while you're trying to have a midnight nap, watching your sheep in the middle of nowhere. That's It's a very scary scene. And so it doesn't begin in a state of peace, but the shepherds leave in a state of peace. 
Why? Well, Simeon and the shepherds both shared a deep understanding of what peace truly is. And we tend to conflate in our world, we, we tend to conflate peace with comfort or stillness or not being at war or I've been shouting at my daughters for the last two hours and they're finally in bed and I can watch sport highlights in the quiet, finally. I don't know anything about that, but people have told me that's where they feel at peace. Um, that's what we think of. We think of peace and comfort, right? Peace and comfort, peace and quiet. We think of those things as synonymous. But peace and comfort really have nothing to do with each other, nor do peace and quiet necessarily. You think Simeon was comfortable? having waited all those years for that one thing to see the Messiah come? You don't think he suffered and longed and yearned for that moment his whole entire long life? When you're yearning for something, you're not at peace. You're waiting eagerly. And that was Simeon. And do you think the shepherd, you think being a shepherd is comfortable? I have my doubts about that. Not only do you contend with sheep, which... I assume is terribly frustrating at times. But to be a shepherd means you are anonymous nobody. You wrestle with your faith because God seems to only care about pure and holy people like the Pharisees. That's how they made it look anyway. God only cares about us because we're so great. And you're not great. And so you wonder if God cares about you at all. You think that God only cares about the good people and the, the, the gifted people, the elite people. When you're a shepherd, you are in total of obscurity and there's no comfort in obscurity only toil i don't know if you felt that i have at times there's not a lot of comfort when you're just nobody likewise there's no comfort in stephen's experience of being singled out by the leaders of of your community being charged with a capital offense being forced to defend yourself in front of a, a whole room full of people who hate you and then being forced off a cliff and murdered there's not a lot of comfort there So peace and comfort are not the same. We're not talking about comfort. We're talking about peace. And the reason that Simeon could die in peace, the reason that Simeon could die in peace, and the reason that the shepherd's fear was overcome by peace, and the reason Stephen went to his bloody fate overwhelmed by peace, was because they understood that God is in control and that he has and is and will one day make everything right. That is where peace comes from. The fulfillment of knowing that God is making things right. Making things as they are supposed to be. And I mentioned has, is, and will, and that's how it is. He has made things right. He sent his son already. His son died and was resurrected already and is now glorified as king of kings already. That has already happened. But still the world is not at peace. So he is actively working to bring peace into your life right now. And one day in the future, he will consummate all of creation back to himself and there will be a final, fulfilled, total peace. Was, is, and is to come. That's how we experience peace. It has already come, it is coming, and it will come again one time in the future. And all of that, all of that brings peace. Knowing that God has made things right again brings peace. That's where our peace comes from knowing that we are right with God because of Jesus. We have been made right, we are being made right, and we will be made right. Simeon knew who that baby was, and he declared it openly to Jesus' parents. He said in the, I put the passage up behind me, 
He said, this child is a light of salvation for all the nations, Jew and Gentile alike. This child would cause much turmoil, Simeon says. He speaks of rising, cause many to rise and many to fall, and a sword will, will pierce your soul. Conflict, turmoil, ups and downs. It's not easy. This child will do this. But in the midst of that turmoil, God is making everything right again. The light is back. It was dark for for 400 years that you hadn't heard from God. It was dark. And now there is light. The star is shining. There is light. He's calling all people back to himself. Even, even the people who are devalued and demeaned by the world. And in fact, he came especially for the people who are devalued and demeaned and made obscure by the elite people. That's who he came for. Not the people who think they're great who think they're already right with God, those are the furthest people from being right with God. Those are the furthest people from peace. He came for those who know they're not right with God, who need peace and work for peace and find peace where where it can only be found in him. Those who feel the most turmoil are the people he most urgently sought after. Simeon knew this and it brought him peace. The shepherds experienced this peace upon beholding the baby Jesus as well. God has arrived. That's they they they're told to go to the manger. They see him. All they're doing is glimpsing a baby. Sometimes babies have that effect, right? Just to hold a baby will bring you peace. But all they do is go see this poor woman and her baby. That's, they just catch a glimpse of a baby in a barn and they leave rejoicing. Praising God, feeling at peace. Even a glimpse of Jesus is enough to bring us peace. As I mentioned last week, Jesus was born into a contentious and complicated time in Israel's history. I won't go into all of it again, but Israel was fighting endlessly with Rome and with each other. It was was not a time of peace for Israel itself. The birth narrative, as I mentioned before, includes genocide and poverty, and teen pregnancy, and illegitimate fathers, and terrifying visions, and a refugee family fleeing to Egypt. And in all of this, at the very center of everything, is Jesus the Savior, gently radiating peace in the midst of all of that. The peace that comes with God being in control, and patiently reforming life back into what it's supposed to look like. A profound, transformative peace. This life, lived as it was intended, with God as God and us as his servant followers instead of the other way around, there is no peace when you think you are God and you try to force God to serve you. It won't work and you'll never be at peace. But when life is lived as it's supposed to with the proper recognition of who God is and who we are in light of who God is, that's where peace is found. When you know your place, and usually when we say that in this society, there's connotations to that. Know your place. But it's true with God that when we do know our place, how lowly we are and what his life can transform us into, when we do know our place, you know this, you've experienced, that's why you're here. When you know your place, you begin to know peace. That's why the Christmas story is a glow with peace, even in the midst of tremendous turmoil, because God is in control. It may not look like it. I mean, to Joseph, it didn't look at all like, God was in control. What do you mean? I'm so, she's I'm pregnant. That's not a good look for me, God. It's not how things are supposed to be. He wanted to break it off. 
he didn't, to him, it didn't look like God was in control. It took an angel coming to him and saying, no, 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 it's okay. Everything will be all right. And then he saw God at work. Simeon and Anna are real heroes because they did see that God was in control. Even in their waiting and in their longing, they knew God was in control. And so their waiting paid off. But there's a lot of that in the Christmas story. How could God be in control of all of this? But he is. Even when life is in chaos, even when our lives don't look like the pieces are falling together like they should, that's maybe because you don't see the whole box. You don't see the whole picture. Mary, more than anyone, I'm sure, knew what it was to trust a God who is in control. She had a, she stood to lose a lot by undergoing what she under, underwent for God. She was the most at risk of anyone. But she said, let it be as it will be. I'm your servant. You are in control. Do, with, do as you say. And because of that, she knew peace. Just a glimpse of him, just a glimpse of Jesus is enough to bring peace, a peace which the world does not know. John 14 and 16 make that clear. A peace that can only be understood when we see how his life and his calling make our life complete, not comfortable, complete, full, meaningful. Life as it was intended to be lived. And there's a word for that, a beautiful Jewish word for that, for that sense of peace. It's not the peace of absence of war. It's not the peace of comfortability. It's not the peace of just stillness and quiet. Shalom is the the peace that comes with everything being made right. Everything being as it was intended to be. Genesis 1 and 2 is all about shalom. God being in control and life looking like it's supposed to. And Genesis 3 is the breaking of shalom. And all the rest of scripture is God's God working to bring shalom back to his people, to make life right again. And that didn't really happen fully until this baby was born into chaos. That's when it, that's when shalom was born. We know peace because we know him and in him, everything else makes sense. Even pain and persecution and death to Stephen, because his life was in, in the hands of the one who is in control to Stephen. Death made sense. How profound is that? He wasn't afraid of it. It's not that he welcomed it and walked into it happily, but he understood its purpose. He understood that there was transformation beyond death. He understood shalom. He understood peace. God is in control even when these broken, ugly, messy things arise. God is in control. He knows all about them. He knows all about chaos. His son was born into it. His son experienced death at the hands of it. He knows all about chaos. Nobody thought the plan was going as it was supposed to when Jesus was crucified. That's for sure. But God was in control. And that's why there is peace. That's why he's the prince of peace. Because he conquered death. He conquered brokenness. To bring us peace. To make us right. That's why he's the prince of peace. That's why those who are executed for his name accept this joyfully. They are immersed in peace. Death has no power over them. Life is as it's supposed to be, which means death is as it's supposed to be, which means life after death is as it's supposed to be. And will be even more fully so. Life will be even more fully at peace and even more fully complete when he returns once again and brings all things under his authority and dominion. Finally. So, it may seem like a stretch, I admit. But... When I watch that clip from Miracle on 34th Street, I am reminded of Stephen 
and I'm reminded of a peace that comes when life is as it's supposed to be. If Kris Kringle really is Santa Claus, if he is who he says he is, then it's truly a miracle. You can't prove the unprovable. You can't prove Santa Claus, just like you can't prove the existence of God or the Messiahship of Jesus. You cannot prove it. You just have to believe it. But you can eliminate the argument of insanity. You can make it less insane to believe in it. That's that's what Chris Kringle's attorney does. He doesn't prove necessarily this man is Santa. He just takes away the insanity of believing this man might be Santa. And that's what Stephen does too. He goes through all the scriptures. He doesn't prove Jesus is the Messiah. He doesn't show them. He doesn't show the glorified Jesus in the heavens shining down on them. He doesn't prove this Jesus is the Messiah. But he appeals to a higher authority, and that higher authority points to the fact that he is who he said he was. He eliminated the argument of insanity. If they chose to not believe Jesus was who he was, if they chose to not have peace, then that was their choice. But he made it very clear that there was another choice, that maybe he is the Prince of Peace. He did that not by appealing to the federal government, but by appealing to God himself. I think there's a powerful message there for us as well about peace. I think that the peace that we have to offer, just like the joy that we have to offer and the hope that we have to, and the love that we have to offer, those things, it's, there's no argument that will win people into the kingdom. Occasionally, yes. But how many more millions of souls have been saved, not by arguments and by proofs, but by demonstrations of these four things you see hanging on the walls? That's how I was convinced he's the Messiah. I saw his love in in you and in other people. I saw his hope in scripture. I saw the joy you can have even in the midst of pain. And so when the world sees how we cling to our Jesus, even when life is its stormiest, many will marvel at the peace that we have, a peace that allows us even to die satisfied, like Simeon, a peace that draws us out of obscurity and allows us to glimpse him before bursting into adoration like the shepherds. A peace that doesn't escape from turmoil, but instead guides us through it. So never mind 34th Street. The real miracle is the peace this child brought to the chaos all around him. That peace is the miracle that we have to offer a world in conflict and corruption and chaos as well. That is the miracle. That we know what this world is like. I don't need to illuminate any of that for you. You see the news, you feel the pain. We know what this world is like. And the real miracle is that you can have peace even in the midst of all that mess. That's the miracle. It's a peace experienced only by those who know they're standing before God the Father. It's a peace found only in the Holy Spirit. It's a peace made possible only by Jesus Christ, who was born into turmoil and died in shame, but brought true peace to humanity for the first time 2,000 years ago. The peace of knowing God knowing our standing before him and experiencing that life with others and sharing it with others. That's the miracle. It's life as it was intended to be. Him as God, us as follower, and that brings peace. What a miracle that peace truly is here on 51st Street, Clyde, Alberta. Did you know this is 51st Street? It is. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for peace. And we we don't often feel totally at peace Father, if we're honest, there's a lot of conflict and turmoil in our world. There's a lot of sadness. There's a lot of things that we grieve. There's a lot of things that, there's a lot of pain that we feel and pain that we cause. 
We are not always at rest, Father, but in you, help us to have that peace, that, that peace that comes with being fulfilled, that peace that comes with being made right with you. We, we read these stories of Simeon and the shepherds and even Stephen, these stories in scripture where people should not be at peace, but they are filled with peace and they shine peace outwards because they're filled with you, because they know that they are right with you. Help us to, to, to know that peace as well. Not just know it, but live it and share it. Um, you are the Prince of Peace, Jesus. You earn that title on the cross and you give us, you give us the rewards of that. You share those rewards with us. Peace, even in a broken, tumultuous life. It's a good life that you call us to. And we thank you for it, Father. Amen. All right. Go in peace, people of peace. 